Niani, Nalawangan, Mari Bajari, Gunnyurida. We meet today together on very beautiful Gadi country. Welcome to Whose University, Whose Culture, the first of three History of University Life podcasts about making universities fit for purpose. I'm Julia Horne, Professor of History at the University of Sydney and co-convener of the History of University Life seminar on higher education. In these podcasts, I talk to three authors of essays in a new publication Australian Universities, A Conversation About Public Good. You just heard from one of the authors, Lisa Jackson-Pulver. Lisa is the Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Indigenous Strategy and Services at the University of Sydney. The words you just heard are in the Gadigal language and are from the University of Sydney's new Indigenous strategy, One Sydney, Many People. I caught up with Lisa to talk about the strategy's objectives to remake culture. Congratulations, Lisa, because those words come from your new, or the university's new Indigenous strategy, One Sydney, Many People. And to me, that those words actually, they just, it really conveys a beautiful sentiment, I think. And I have to say it. So I want you to go through it slowly and I will then try and say it myself. I have an admission. I'm not a Neora speaker. I am a Radjuri woman. And so I have a reputation of mangling every language I speak and sign. Okay. The first word. Ni. Yini. Ni. Yini. Ni. Yini. Ni. Yini. <laughs> That's pretty good. Mari. Mari. Bajari. Bajari. Garinurada. Garinurada. So, I wonder if it sounds like this. That first word is a killer, I must say. Mm. Nini. Is that all right? Almost. Nini. Nini. Nyalawangan. Mari Pujari Kadanurada. It sounds pretty good, but, you know, again, you'd have someone like Jacqueline Troy say, oh, yeah, say like this. And any proper speaker of the language, such as Cameron Davison, for example, who helped us with the language, worked with Luke Penrith, who did the art, which we'll talk about shortly. But the point is, I suppose, that for a long, long time, languages weren't spoken. People didn't think they were important. They all thought that they were gone and diminished. Um, and here we are making a concerted attempt to give it a good go. And I'm so proud of the university in its work at really starting to own its role on this place. And I'll talk more about that later, I guess. But to really grip up its own belonging here and its future and very much a part of that is how we describe things, what we call things, and the proper use of Australian language, which of course in this area is the Gadigal language. Now, I felt really privileged to say those words, mm. but I also felt, I guess, self-conscious because I'm not, I don't have Gadigal ancestry and as far as I know, I don't have Aboriginal ancestry. So it's almost that I feel privileged, but, you know, am I doing the right thing or is that yet another 
cultural appropriation. Mm. So can you perhaps just talk a bit about mm. that, about why it's important, in fact? Is it important, I guess, for all Australians to actually start saying words from their local Indigenous languages? Can universities help in doing that? I don't think a university has any choice but to support the progression of Indigenous languages into the normal ebb and flow of university days. It's part of the Australian lexicon. We speak the way we do with our accent and it's different from that of New Zealand, Aotearoa, it's different from other English-speaking nations as it is different from Ireland, Scotland and England herself. If we weren't here, we wouldn't sound like this. If we were in New Zealand, we'd sound like New Zealanders. And the New Zealanders sound the way they do because of the influence of Māori language. So languages have always been around. They always develop. They always grow. And there's always a context to it. For a long time now, Aboriginal people have always used their languages. Um, And many of them started to move away from being known as children were forcibly removed from their families, as people moved away from their ancestral lands or were forced away from their ancestral lands, as the stories started to become unrecognisable because of the consequences of the invasion or of the colonial endeavour, however you want to refer to that. I mean, no offence. But it's interesting because in 2008... Auntie Matilda House did something remarkable on the foot on Parliament House and it was the day before then Prime Minister Rudd gave the formal apology for stolen generations. And when I say that, people often remember where they were on the day. It was so significant. But for me, and certainly for my family, the day before was the big day. And as we were all waiting in the marble area inside that first big entry of Parliament House, people were gathering with Aunty Matilda and many Aboriginal elders from other places, along with both Houses of Parliament and many, many, many others that, that work in Parliament. Few notable exceptions, but only a few. Aunty Matilda House got up and she started her welcome to country. And she started to talk to people and say, this is not a bit of entertainment, you know, the smoking ceremony or the clapsticks or the yiriki or the dancing She said, this is something we've been doing for a long, 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 long time. And she said, and when I do this, welcome to country. I'm not welcoming you here for the ceremony or the event that we're talking about today, as important as it is. She said, I am saying to you that no matter where you come from and no matter whether you arrived yesterday or 100 years ago or 230-odd years ago or longer, that you are on this country, none or land, and that you have got rights and obligations and responsibilities. And now we have such a diverse Australian community. Now, this is my interpretation of what she said, right? You all belong here. You're not going to go back home. And many of our people are multi-ethnicity. I mean, in my own blood, I've got some Scots and Welsh ancestry. I can't take that out and just leave the other bits and like have these different ways. And she said, The onus is on everybody to understand what it is to belong here, to understand what the language is, to know what the history is and grip it up and own it, right? And you've got a responsibility to pass that on to future generations. You all belong here. 
You all have rights, obligations and responsibilities and it's about time we got away from putting Aboriginal stuff on the side and bringing it in for special occasions. It is how we are as Australians and it's time we, we got real with that. So that's my longer interpretation of what I believe Arnie Matilda said on the day. And to be frank, I have spoken to her many times about my interpretation and it's a lovely conversation. What you've just said, I read that into the strategy, into... One Sydney, many people. I read precisely that that feeling into it or that yeah. sense that that's what you want to achieve with this and that's yeah. what the university wants to achieve with this. That's exactly what we need to. Everyone sort of says, oh, Australia's first university. That's an accident of birth, quite frankly. Somewhere had to have the first Australian university, but I think what comes to the guts of it for me, and I didn't know this until I started here, was that way back in the 1850s they ran an art competition for someone to create a design that would represent this new aspirational facility called the university on the colonial land. People were sick to death of sending their kids back to England or wherever to undergo a university education and then hope that they'll come all the way back on the boat to the colony or back to Sydney or back to wherever and hopefully then marry and, and raise children. And you know, they just didn't want to keep doing that, notwithstanding the dangers of the long journeys. And so they had this wonderful art competition. A guy got off the boat called Marshall Claxton. He was an artist and he had in his baggage the first art exhibition, materials for the first art exhibition that was ever going to be held in this, in this amazing place. And he came apparently, and I don't know how much of this is true and how much of it I've picked up on my readings and I couldn't tell you where I found this, but I learnt that he had come here and he just lurked. He looked around the site that was proposed for the new university and he saw a number of things. The first thing he saw was lots and lots of gadai trees. And I don't know if he asked why are there so many gadai trees or whether he knew that the name of the people of this place, the Gadigal, the people of the Gadi tree, right? I don't know. And the other thing he recognised that up in the sky was, of course, the Southern Cross. So his representation of the first identifiable seal that was of this university that got it all kicked off was Lady Learning sitting upon a plinth, putting a laurel wreath upon the head of a kneeling scholar. Okay, very typical. Up in the sky, of course, was the Southern Cross, so there's no mistake about what hemisphere you're in. And behind Lady Learning and her kneeling scholar, of course, were a lot of gaddy trees. And it's no accident that someone who got straight off the boat would come and feel the kind of connection and the aspiration that the people of early Sydney wanted for this place. And I was so filled with pride when I saw that because I thought, if only those sorts of connections were made way, 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 way back in 1788 and were enhanced. Can you imagine how extraordinary a society we would be if we didn't other Aboriginal people? And here's this English bloke getting off a boat and in his innocence and his determination to address the aspirations of the local people, the local white male community mainly, for a university that he, he chose to draw that. So I think it's really interesting that you pick the visual image, so the artistic work for that seal, because on, <clears throat> on the strategy itself, there's a beautiful piece of artwork which is painted by an Aboriginal contemporary artist, Luke Penrith. Mm -hmm. And I just wonder 
I'd, I'd like you to talk us through that, so what you see there, and in particular, there are visitors' circles which are depicted and what they mean and how they perhaps depict a journey for all of us at this university, and but also more broadly. Luke Penreath is a wonderful young Aboriginal artist. He's Wiradjuri, amongst other things. When we asked him to consider putting in a, a bid to do this work, we shared the story of not just the seal, but also the journey that the university's been on and its desire to really be very clear about who it is in context of the Australian environment, to be a very, very Australian university, to be a place where you could sit in any room of the university or studio or chemistry lab and there is nowhere else in the whole wide world where you could be other than here in Australia. And I know I often speak about this in the context of New Zealand. You cannot go into any room in a New Zealand university and not know exactly where you are. Not suggesting we want to be the same as our dear uh, brothers and sisters over in Aotearoa. However, there is an important principle and that is that people do not forget where they are. And yet here we can walk through the joint and forget quite merrily where we are and that's not okay. Our founding instrument for this university was absolutely out of the geography of this land and I think we've lost our way. So the strategies that have come into play in recent decades and certainly this one now is very much about inviting the community that is our university, that is our staff, our students, our alumni and the people who surround our community, you know, our footprint and we've got multiple footprints around the land to have a say because this is their university. We're proud of our early beginnings and we're proud of the role we have, but we really do need to put into the centre everything that we do as being about who we are on this land. So when Luke received the commission, it was very much around him creating a piece that he calls Come, Share and Learn. And he has got that named in Gadigal language. And I invite listeners to Google it, uh, have a look at One Sydney Many People, and down on page 28 is, of course, the story that I'm about to share. So it depicts the really rich story of knowledge, community, and growth, of aspiration and of journeying. And in the centre of the artwork, of course, is our beloved Gaddy. For your interest, by the way, there's 29 different species of the Gaddy in the whole wide world and 100% of those species are here in Australia. So there's nowhere else in the world where you'll see that, that tree and here we are on the land of the Gadigal. So anyhow, as I said before, it was all over the campus and it is now coming back, which is great. But within the middle, there is a new growth. We have some Gaddai plants on this campus that are arguably well over 250 years old. So they predate the university, which is cool. And there are four strong pillars uh, in our strategy one is Nyoraganingan, which is culture and community. The next is Eora, which is people. Nara, which is education and research. And of course, Bimulan, which is the environment. For our environment to be one where the conversations happen easy, there's quite a lot of work that you need to do. So in the middle of the Gaddy tree, of course, is a representation of a heart. And it's very much a heartbeat. And it's the thing that has always continued on. You know, when we say always has been, always will be, or in Gadigal language, it's yidawa, yigarogu, yidawa, yigarogu, and I probably completely mispronounced that. 
And that is as by a beautiful piece of artwork that's in the Fisher Library. Always has been, always will be. That heartbeat will continue on. Now, remember, Aboriginal people have been here for more than 60,000 years. That's through ice ages. That's through catastrophes from deep space called meteors. Culture has continued all that time. There's nowhere else on planet Earth where that is the case. So there's something to be said about the centre of that heartbeat that continues on. The other things that are really solid in this painting that I'd just like to point out is that there's two strong visitor circles. There's one visitor circle, and again, I'll refer our listeners back to the actual um, strategy on page 28. That one visitor circle is really around those people who know where they're going, they know what they're doing, um, they're on a journey, they're very happy and strong. They're probably people who know something of the history of this land. They're probably people who are incredibly comfortable knowing that their role in history is their role in history and that Australia, as the great nation that it is, should be embraced, warts and all, to move forward, that no one's distinctly uh, not included. Then there are others that are on a, a different journey and sometimes that's a journey of people who are still discovering what it is to be Australian, what it is to belong. And when he was sharing that story with me, I was thinking about some of the classes that I used to teach and I was running a program of public health and we decided to have a stream in Indigenous health in the day. So it was in Master of Public Health, Indigenous Health is the stream. And most of the students that enrolled were international students and students who are first generations Australians. And I said, why are you lot doing here? I just expected to be overwhelmed with Australian people and from people who are fourth, fifth, sixth, seventh generation. Uh, and they said, no, all of them came from a place that had a strong culture. Um, many of them wanted to learn something of Aboriginal ways to take back home because they were international students. And the others that were first generation Aussies were very, very keen to really embrace with the culture of this land because many of them had still strong connections to the culture back home, wherever back home was for them. And I asked a couple of the Australians in the room, what's the story with you lot? And they said, well, it's about time we learnt something of this land and they take inspiration from those newer people, newer arrivals to this land about what is culture. So when you sort of say Australia has a strong, living, enduring culture, it is a culture that's changing. It's a culture that's embracing many different things, but we always have that heartbeat of that first culture. And that's what, to me, that second lower corner circle represents is that it's calling us all home. <laughs> and that we learn and discover on the way. Absolutely. We learn and discover along the way, which is a beautiful thing. You did mention the four pillars mm. and you said their names in Gadigal language, and which I really like. So it's always <laughs> about, it's ensuring that we as Australians and even our visitors become used to that language, yeah. you know, that it's all around us it's widely heard and it's visible, as it were. It is, yeah. So one of them, the fourth pillar mm -hmm. is Pamulian. Uh, mm -hmm. So can you translate that? And I also want to know, well, can you translate it first? And I'll ask my question. Yeah, so that pillar has come about because many of the people who participated in, in sharing their thoughts on what the Indigenous strategy should look like and there were, oh, 
wow, over 3,000 individual pieces of feedback that were given. So this was a substantial desire of the university community. They wanted to know how it is they can walk through a place and bring visitors through a place or have students in a place or be students themselves or belong in this place and have conversations that are easy to have. So some of the things were around having dual naming. People want the precincts and the roads named in a proper way, describing how Aboriginal people described the places that our university is on. What is the various words to describe the different types of water that flow through this place or the different aspects of the sky or the undulations of the land or the kangaroo ground. Um, And so we looked at that very carefully as the physical environment and what's above and what's below. The built environment and the building, so again, there's a a structured conversation that's occurring with our Senate, with our university executive and, of course, with Office of General Counsel about how is it we can pay proper tribute to not just those people who contributed money or who are honoured by some of the older building names, but how we can start getting people really used to dual naming and what that means for some of our buildings. So we have a really good opportunity to have those conversations and those conversations are empowered by the university community because that's what they told us they wanted. But the other part of the environment is not only just the physical environment, it's the spiritual environment. What does it mean? So again, I'll come back to that initial question. What is it to be on a place that's always been like a place of culture, a place of learning, a place of life transitions? And I think that goes way beyond what the physical is. It's really about how people belong. And for me, that's probably the most important part of the environment. How is it people can feel responsible for the next 60,000 years in the same kind of way as Aboriginal people have felt responsible and have been responsible and responsible for the past 60,000 years? If I could just ask you there, so Pamulian means environment. A sense of place. A sense of place. It's literally a sense of place. And that sense of place, again, English is really clunky. There's a story about what sense of place means. And one of the things we were discussing was a way where a grandmother could see her child dance or a parent could hear their child sing the Australian anthem, for example, in Gadigal language, or where you would walk through a series of trees and say, I can eat that berry or that I know would be really good medicine if I burnt myself. Sense of place is about knowing place and knowing that place in the centre of your heart and knowing where you are in that place. So can I get you to briefly explain why that is really important for a university strategy? such as One Sydney, Many People, but really all strategies. Yeah. I think people, well, I know people have been yearning and thirsty for a long, long time about Aboriginal matters on this land. People, I mentioned before Kevin Rudd and the National Apology, that was way back in 2008. And one of the really critical things that it did was to underline the end of the history wars that there was on one side people saying, no, didn't happen, and on the other side people saying, yep, did happen. Finally we landed on the side of truth, which is, yep, did happen. Um, And so it allows us now to re-strike how it is we want to be into the future. 
And as a place of higher education and of learning, people come to our institutions because they want a quality Australian education. If they want an American education, they tootle off overseas, or an English education, they do that. But they stay here or they come here for the purposes of having Australian education, and part of that education has to be utterly imbued with how it is we are on country. So belonging to a place, being responsible to a place, and having a place that you say, I'm going to put down my roots, I'm going to have my kids here, and I'm going to have generations after these kids, or I... M from generations of people who have come before, how is it I'll be responsible into the deep, dark future, however that looks? And I say that in that way because I think we're dealing with a lot of critical issues at the moment. We're dealing with, originally we were dealing with awful, awful fires, terrible, terrible drought, smoke encasing our cities, pandemic that is just hiccuping its way out the door, please be gone soon, water resources, we've got gas mining that's threatening all sorts of ability for us to be able to have clear, sustainable farming practices. It's just all of this stuff that we've got. And the thing is, is that Aboriginal people and Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander sciences, for example, have got a lot to contribute to that whether it's with the traditional practices of backburning or whether it's with water conservation methods or even fishing, sustainable fishing methods, there's a swag of stuff that people can learn from the people of this land, not to exclude them from the conversations in the future, but to recognise that our future utterly depends on those conversations. So without the discussion of environment, our universities are losing a marvellous opportunity of leading research that I think can help save the world. So Pamulian is almost, it's a concept which both has a very real place in terms of acknowledging that we are on Gadigal country, but it also is, I guess, an aspect of, here I'll say, is word Indigenous knowledge that we should be embracing anyway because we should be caring about the country. We're all, we're all in it together. Mm. Would that be a fair enough st- yeah, summary rights, of, of that? Yeah, rights, responsibilities and obligations. It's all embraced in what Arnie Matilda said over a decade ago. It's such important work. But I also wonder how your own experience as a Koori woman has brought you to this point. You were once an undergraduate student at the University of Sydney, and I'd love you to talk about that early experience And in particular, whose university did you think you had come to and whose culture? Well, just to be clear, I was a runaway from home at 14, did not finish my HSC, became a registered general nurse through the hospital-based training, so I had this little certificate, and I decided I wanted to become a neurosurgeon. Only problem is I had to do medicine first, right? So that's the context. And so as a ripe 30-something-year-old, I wrote to the university and said, I want to come and do medicine. They got me to come in and have an interview. The interview panel that I came to was an interview panel that was of people who were refugees. And so they didn't know where else to put this, you know, crazy curry. And so I got on the end of that. By some miracle, they decided that I could come in. The interview itself was really tricky. You know, I got asked by one guy, what part Aboriginal am I? You'd never ask that nowadays, and I would respond quite differently nowadays to the way I responded then, to be honest. But the first day I walked into uni, I had to go to Bosch Lecture Theatre, and I'd already done a recce the weekend before of where I had to be and what books I had to have. And so I walked in, and I walked into Bosch Lecture Theatre 1, and there were a couple of kids 
in third year or something or other in white coats that were directing us. So the 100 percenters were in the front row and, da, 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 and sort of us mature age students were up in the back row. And oh, to my delight, there were multiples. But I came into a university that was utterly not for people like me. And the other mature age students that were in the row with me, we were all just shaking our head and we were just really surprised. The dean at the time had this remarkable ability to be able to look down his nose, even though you were sitting way above him in the back of the lecture theatre. And he started speaking in Latin. And as I understand it, the translation was, first you'll work hard and then you'll work harder and then you'll even do more work. And went on to say how, you know, the group before him is the cream of the cream of the cream who will lead the country and all this stuff. So it was then that I realised that this is just incredible to be in a place that is so what I felt elitist. And it was only when I started to hang out at the Koori Centre and I started to hang out with the women's groups and I got to be one of the co-officers on the SRC that I learnt that there were a terrific number of people just like me. Many of us were first in family. Many of us came from very different socioeconomic standards and that not all of us are 100 percenters. But the academy itself, or certainly in the school I was in, were completely out of touch with the demographic. They were completely out of touch with the students. And that was a bit of a surprise. And when I, I got a job at Sydney University in 95, it was really interesting that most of the people in the world I was in were mostly people like myself who were not in that, that upper echelon, but all the senior management were. But, of course, remember, I was far distance from that mob in those days. And as I grew through the academy, I realised two things. One is that the academies on a whole don't really reflect the demographic of their students, and that is slowly changing. That seems to be taking a long time. And the second thing is that there are now more of us than there are of them. Uh, What I mean by that is that there are a lot more people who are from part of the world where their parents were relocated or refugees or their families were brought up in poverty or they are the survivors of all sorts of horrors or there isn't like the ideal elite uh, person who came through a stunning home with two kids in a mansion in the east who went to the top private school who got the top marks who've had this top-class childhood who's an elite sports player to boot who can play violin. Quite frankly, I think it's always been a fiction. Everyone has a journey, everyone has a story, and often those stories are always very challenging for them and that my perspective of socioeconomic status changed significantly when I learnt that It's not only poor people that have problems. It's a really clunky way of saying that we are such a diverse place now and I am grateful for that. So when we come to the question of who belongs at university, you belong at university. I belong at university. I belong here because I want to be here. Not everyone belongs in university because they don't want to come to university. That makes sense, right? But Everyone who has an aspiration to be here or an aspiration for their kids have a right. And I think that's one of the things that's really started to settle in the last few decades. 
that we aren't the elite group of 100%ers. Our kids haven't had the idealistic journey and swam through school. There's always been a bit of struggle street in us all. The thing that really worries me, uh, and this is just one thing that really worries me, is the various rules around progression. So Aboriginal people, Aboriginal students, and this is some research I did at another university way back, when you have entry programs into university for Koori kids, often they don't do so well in first year. Um, but if they manage to get through and do the resits that they need to do, or the repeat occasionally, by the time they get to the middle of their degree, they're at the median mark of the rest of the students. In other words, they've managed to catch up on six years of school in that short period of time and get to median standard in the middle of their degree. Now, under the current rules, under the new rules that are coming in, a student who fails 50% of first year will lose their place in their program unless they pay full fees. Now, I don't know about you, but there would be no chance that many of us would really be able to do that because the truth is most of us don't come with that kind of economic advantage. More power to those who do, I suppose. But what that also means on the flip side is that it's only the rich will be able to pay for their kids to get through if they don't make it in first year. It worries me because for a long, long time we've been an academy that's opened all doors to all talent, no matter who you are and where you're from. And some might argue that's not quite true. But certainly my experience and the experience of many who have come through the doors me as a mature age student, but other students that I've worked with who have come through the doors, it's not the case at all. It's welcoming, it's open, but this is going to be something that we're going to have to argue with government very strategically against because it will not be equitable, it will not be fair, and it will be closing the doors to someone who might end up finding a cure for something really significant. <laughs> That's exactly right. So... I think the final question is actually going to be one about public good and how this beautiful document won Sydney many people. So it's intended, obviously, to consolidate change within the university and help people on that journey, um, acknowledge that some are already there <laughs> and that others, like the painting that you described before, are on the journey of learning and discovery. But I wonder if we can now broaden that out and does a strategy like that, it's internally focused, but is there some way in which that strategy also contributes to the public good? And how would you define that particular public good? Wow, that's a very big question. We have a, an element of our strategy which is about community right, culture and community, and it's the first part of that strategy. The thing with culture and community is that you don't sort of come into work and you strip off everything else that you are and you just do this uni thing and then you sort of put that all back on and then you go home. It doesn't, doesn't happen that way. It doesn't work that way and there's always leaky margins and I'm grateful for that. The university tore down its walls that used to surround the joint like a fortress and took out the guard boxes years ago. So we are definitely a place that people can meander on through. But where this really comes into play is that we have... Uh, always recognise that we are responsible to our local communities and those communities around the footprint of this campus, for example, are specifically Darlington, Glebe, Redfern, 
Camperdown, Marrickville and a few other places to boot. And for us to not recognise that would be missing out on an awful lot of knowledge and understanding and of sharing and of contributions to each other. So we work very carefully and closely with our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities around the area. And I know that a lot of our schools, groups, PSUs also work very closely with Aboriginal communities on specific projects. That imbues the community with a sense of ownership of our university. It's going to be a really daggy thing to say, but the university isn't the buildings, right? We've got a block of land, a big block of land. We've got a bunch of buildings on it, all different types of buildings. But if you somehow tore down all those buildings and took away the block of land, you've still got a community practice. The university is its people. Its people are the university. You can take us out, but we're still university. So the service that we give to our community doesn't stop at our walls. The service that our community gives us doesn't stop at the walls. It actually starts in both places and there's a lot of margins across that. That's in the same way as culture. There's no such thing, I think, as a university culture. And you can point to something you don't like and say, see, that's typical of that culture of this place you know well no it's not what is the culture of the place if you're just pointing to the bad stuff then a how come you're still here b how come many of us have aspirations for our kids and our family members to come to university why is it we go to doctors and nurses and we get serviced by the people that have been to universities no if there is a problem then we have to change it because we are the people and we have the power right we we have our instruments of being able to influence change in the place. If we don't like it, then we have ways of making it better. And part of that is how do I need to be better so that I can influence the practice around me. So I see culture and community as being a hand in glove way of being and of belonging. And I think if people really understand this place, they will understand where they belong in it. And if they belong in it, then they will serve it well and it will serve them well. So it's all about reciprocity for me. So that the public good served in that instances, as I understand you saying, is that we should, as Australians, value our communities around us, recognise there are a whole lot of communities, but we're both all one, but we're made up of many. And if we start to examine and really take on board that sort of idea, Australia will be better. Agreed. And I don't think we can... I think time is not on our side. I think we just need to get over ourselves, all those little individual pockets that say I'm not like them or I'm different to them. We sleep on this land and many people forget that you can't not be influenced by the geography of place. You cannot not be influenced by your role in that place. And it's time for us to truly embrace what it is to belong to this place. One Sydney, many people. Thank you, Lisa. Thank you. These podcasts are interviews with authors of chapters in a new publication, Australian Universities, A Conversation About Public Good. It's edited by Julia Horne and Matthew Thomas and published by Sydney University Press in their policy series. History of University Life Higher Education Seminar has run for over 10 years, It's convened by Julia Horne, Matthew Thomas and Gabby Ramea and addresses issues in higher education, 
drawing on expertise from across the sector. You can find out about our events by heading over to History of University Life on Twitter handle at HULSeminar. That's all one word. The podcast is supported by the School of Humanities and the Faculty of Arts and Social Sciences at the University of Sydney, with technical assistance from Peter Adams. The podcast was recorded on Gadigal Country, and we pay our respects to Elders past and present.